We are continuing our study in the Gospel of John, and we are in chapter 5 this morning. Hopefully you brought your Bibles. You'll probably need them. Uh, I will have scripture on screen for us uh, to look at, but it's always good to have your Bibles because sometimes I don't put the scripture up on there, and sometimes uh, I'll be referring back to verses that were on a previous screen, so you'll want to make sure that you bring your Bibles with you each week. J. Oswald Sanders um, wrote in the book, The Incomparable Christ, If Jesus is not God, then there is no Christianity. And we who worship him are nothing more than idolaters. Conversely, if he is God, those who say he was merely a good man or even the best of men are blasphemers. More serious still... If he is not God, then he is a blasphemer in the fullest sense of the word. If he is not God, he is not even good. That's a pretty powerful quotation. We don't often think about the deity of Christ in that way. We've We've talked about it so much. We've read scripture that speaks to it. We, it, it. It's just a given for many of us. But the implications of that truth for our lives is staggering. The deity of Jesus Christ is a foundational doctrine of the Christian faith. If Jesus is not God, then our faith is worthless. And we are still in our sins. So we cannot afford to be indifferent to this great truth. We must believe rightly about Jesus and then submit to his authority over our lives. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word to us. And this morning as we approach this passage... In the Gospel of John, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us, that we would clearly see you for who you are. And then once we recognize that, that that we would bring our lives into submission to your authority. That we would begin thinking about how in every area of our life we need to, to, to come under your authority. Ways that we may not even um, consider at present time. But Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would put your finger on those areas of our life. That we would recognize you as God come in the flesh. The one who has all authority over every aspect of our being. Holy Spirit, be our teacher this morning, we pray. Amen. In the first uh, 18 verses of chapter 5, we saw Jesus heal uh, a, a man at the pool of Bethesda, and he did so on the Sabbath day, and thus he demonstrated his power over sickness, over disease, over infirmities, as well as the authority over the Sabbath, for he is the Lord of the Sabbath, and 
As a result of this, Jesus was becoming a real nuisance. The religious leaders at this point sought to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. In verses 19 through 47, Jesus actually defends his claim to deity. He defends his claim to be God, and he does so with three remarkable proofs and four irrefutable testimonies. And we're going to look at each of these. And so we're going to focus in first on these uh, unbelievable, remarkable proofs. And the first one we see in John chapter 5, starting in verse 19, and that is, is that Jesus only does what he sees the Father doing. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him that all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. Now, one of the reasons why I believe this is one of the remarkable proofs that Jesus gives is because the language that Jesus uses here is special. It's, he uses this language to describe his special relationship with the Father. It's unique. Jesus here is claiming a special relationship with the Father, and it's special in this way. It's exclusive, it's personal, and it's intimate. This is not how people spoke of God But this is how Jesus speaks of God. And and maybe to break it down a little bit more for you, what we learn from this is that the son has the sole, sole privilege to see what the father is doing. He sees what the father is doing. He alone imitates the father and he does what he sees the father doing. The Father loves the Son. See, it speaks of a special, unique relationship. And the Father reveals to him, not to others, but to him, the Son, all that he is doing. Not some of what he's doing, but all that God is doing. And I suggest that God is doing an awful lot. And he has revealed it all to the Son. And then he says, greater works will the Father show him so that they will marvel. You see, Jesus alone will perform the works. Everybody else is just a spectator. Everybody else is just onlookers watching, marveling at what Jesus, the Son of God, is doing. So Jesus only does what he sees the Father doing. But notice also that Jesus does what only God can do. 
In verses 21 through 29, Jesus reveals to them that he has the power to raise the dead. He has the power to grant them eternal life. And he also has the authority to execute judgment. So let's continue reading in verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly. I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So one of the first things that we see that Jesus does that only God can do is that Jesus has the power to raise the dead. You see that phrase, an hour is coming, it's a unique expression in John's gospel, and it occurs only four times, but it occurs four times in John's gospel, and it conveys a future and present reality. The resurrection that will occur on the last day is a present reality for those who are currently spiritually dead and in verse 24, Jesus is clearly speaking of living, breathing people who are spiritually dead. He says, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. They have passed from death to life. And I believe that verse 25 is referencing this present reality, for he says that the hour is now here. It's now, in this present moment. Of course, we can see this in other passages of Scripture. The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that the person who comes to faith in Christ, who believes in him, 
is raised from the spiritual dead. And he is raised to new life in Christ. Now, Jesus not only has the power, though, to raise the spiritually dead. He also has the power to raise the physically dead to life as well. That's why in verse 28, he says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. I mean, I've always loved watching those um, Jesus movies during, you know, the Easter season. Um, And I especially loved um, the story of Lazarus. And... uh, and, I, and, and I, don't, I don't know if it's the greatest story ever told. I think it is. I'm not sure. But um, I, re, I just, the, the picture and the music and everything else, Jesus comes to, to Lazarus and he stands in front of the tomb and he says basically, Lazarus, come forth. And all of a sudden you, you, you see this figure appear out of the darkness because the stone had been rolled away. And of course it's Lazarus and he's all wrapped up and everything. And then the camera kind of shifts to all the people whose eyes are glued on the tomb. And then suddenly I think it's Handel's Messiah kicks in, you know, and the music is just like, oh, yes, awesome. But there's going to come a day when everyone, It's going to come out of the tomb. Jesus is going to say, come forth. Rise up and we will rise up. We will come out of the grave. Now, this verse makes it very clear that a person is more than just a material being, right? I mean, because if he wasn't, if, 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 we, if that's all there was to us was flesh and bone and a little bit of gray matter and we die, it really wouldn't matter what you said to that corpse. Nothing would happen. But when it says they will hear his voice, this tells us that there's more to a person than a material body. It tells us that we have a soul that we have a spirit that lives on long after we are laid in the grave. And it is that part of us that will hear. And as the Lord spoke the world into existence, formed man from the dust of the earth, resurrected an army of dry bones, turned water into wine, brought healing to the sick and to the oppressed, and raised Lazarus from the dead, Jesus will one day call everyone out of the grave back to life. Some people will be resurrected to everlasting life. Others to everlasting punishment. That's what the text tells us. So Jesus has the power to raise the dead, something that only God can do, but also Jesus has the power to grant us eternal life, to give us eternal life. Notice back in verse 21, The Son gives life to whom he will. Now, any Jew would have understood that this was a claim to deity. And it makes perfect sense because only God can give life. 
God created life, all of life. And this verse says, the son gives life to whom he will. Jesus claims that he can give eternal life to whoever he wills. Now, if, if I were to come up to one of you here and uh, take your wallet uh, or your purse, reach in there, grab out a $20 bill, right? What would you think? You'd think, well, he must be hurting. <laughs> um, no, you, you, you'd probably be thinking, hey, hey, what are you doing? You, you don't have the right to do that. That's my money. And, and you would be correct, Right? I mean, if I took your money and gave it to somebody else, you know, you, depending on who I gave it to, you might have pity for them. But at the same time, I just did something that I don't have a right to do. However, if I reached into my wallet, took out a $20 bill and gave it to somebody, you wouldn't have a problem with that, would you? Why not? Because it's mine to give. And that's the point of this text. Jesus has the life. It's his to give. And he will give it to whoever he wills. In fact, it's more than Jesus has the life. He is the life, right? John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Remember back to John chapter 1, when John said that in him was life. And the life was the light of men. And because Jesus has life and is the life, he can give life to whoever he wills. Verse 24, one of our Bible verses that we've memorized, right? Carl, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. And has passed from death to life. Have you made this journey? Have you passed from death to life? To do so, you must believe rightly about Jesus. And submit to his authority over your life. You, you, you can't divide Jesus into two different people. You can't take him as your savior and then reject him as your Lord. I want Jesus to save me and bring me to heaven, but I don't want to follow him. I don't want to obey his commands. So it's not enough to merely acknowledge who Jesus is. We must also submit to his rightful authority over our lives. Jesus has the power and the authority to raise the dead and to give eternal life. But he also, he also has the power and the authority to execute judgment on his creation. In verse 22 and 27 We read, for the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. 
And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. And boy, that last phrase, by the way, that's a proof in itself that he's the son of man. If you go back to Daniel chapter 7, you'll know what I mean. But Jesus here, the the reason why this is so unusual, because it's not just a proof that Jesus can do what the Father does, but here Jesus is claiming to do something that not even the Father does. Not even the Father does what, what, what Jesus is saying here. He is the one who will judge, execute judgment upon his creation. The Father judges no one. He's given it all over to his Son. And those who refuse to hear his word or those who refuse to obey his word will not see life. Rather, they will be resurrected to stand before Jesus where they will receive their just condemnation. And folks, despite what some people would like to believe, um, there are no second chances. How many of you guys uh, watched uh, March Madness this weekend? Anybody watch the games last night? Oh, that Duke, North Carolina game. It's unbelievable. One of the best games I've ever seen. Fantastic. Um, for those of you who don't know, uh, every year um, I uh, uh, have a group called Paul's Hardwood Homies. And, um, and a bunch of you are participating in it. And uh, so we, uh, we pit our prognostication skills against one another to see who's going to, you know, win, get the most points, you know, by picking the national champion and all of that. And uh, this year, um, I, I upped the ante and I said, you could put in five entries, you know, five entries. So pick, you know, your f- five best, and let's see who comes out on top. And lo and behold, guess who's in first place? Um, but... Um, <laughs> But I wasn't always so cocky about it because um, uh, once you hit the sweet 16, right, I mean, brackets were busted left and right. And so whatever hope you had of winning, you just thought it's out the door. And so we, I, you know, oh, I want a second chance. Well, as the Lord would have it, we had a second chance. ESPN, okay, has a second chance bracket. And so you can then start fresh with the 16 teams that make the Sweet 16 and see if you can now pick the national champion. And, um, and so I created that bracket too. Um, but, um, and I won't tell you how I'm doing there because it will be, it'll suffice to say that in the bracket that counts, I'm number one. Um, now you say, well, well Paul, why, why do you even bring that up? It's, it's, it's because... When it comes to life and death, when it comes to our eternal salvation, once we die, there are no second chances. Scripture says it is appointed for man to die once. And after this comes the judgment. There are no second chances. There are no do-overs. There, are no, there is no reincarnation, if you would. 
And we do not just fade to black, as some would like to think. See, the truth is we will all live forever. The only question is where? Those who reject Jesus as God and Savior will be judged by him and cast into hell where they will suffer eternal conscious torment. There's no way to sugarcoat that. And listen, I'll be the first to tell you, I, I don't like that doctrine. C.S. Lewis didn't like that doctrine, but he says, alas, it has the support of Scripture and of reason. The one thing I, I want you to focus on, though, is, is not so much the reality of hell and the fact that, that people will go there tripping over the body of Jesus. What I want you to focus on is that nobody has to. Back in John chapter 3, we read that for God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. There's a way out if we're humble enough to take it. There's one other proof for Jesus' deity. It's back in uh, verse 23. Um, Jesus receives the honor that only God deserves. You know, throughout his earthly ministry, people worshipped him, and he never turned them away. He never said, don't, stop doing that. Don't do that. Worship only God. Never. He accepted it. Verse 23 says, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Now, this, this takes on even greater weight when you understand what God said in the Old Testament. For instance, in the book of Isaiah, he says, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another. Now, how can that be true and what Jesus said be true at the same time? Unless Jesus was God. Even Jesus said in Matthew chapter 4 when he was being tempted by the devil in the wilderness, he said, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So out of Jesus' own mouth, he's saying, you're to only worship God. And yet here he says that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. The only way Jesus could have said that is if he is God, to worship Jesus is to worship God. To honor Jesus is to honor God. To dishonor the Son is to dishonor God the Father. Now in verses 30 and 32, Jesus again speaks of his unique relationship with the Father. And now I'll catch you up to where we are. Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. 
You see, Jesus does not act independently of the Father. He acts in harmony with the Father. And Jesus knew that these people would not receive his testimony. And so he appeals to the testimony of other witnesses, which is in keeping with the law, by the way. And beginning there in verse 33... Jesus now presents four irrefutable testimonies to validate his identity and his mission. Let's take a look at the first one. The first one is the testimony of John the Baptist. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice in it for a while, or to rejoice for a while in his light. If you care to do some additional study, um, look up this idea of a burning and shining lamp, and this concept of rejoicing, because there's a whole heck of a lot more there that I can share here this morning. But they knew what John said about Jesus, and they rejected it. See, they liked John for a while. John John was a cool dude for a while. Because John talked about the coming of the Messiah. But once Jesus came on the scene, um, they, they weren't so happy. See, they rejoiced for a while, but then they stopped rejoicing. Why? Because Jesus didn't fit the mold of the Messiah that they had hoped for, that they wanted. When John pointed people to Jesus as the Messiah, they no longer rejoiced. They wanted a conquering hero who would come and rid them of Rome and return Israel to their uh, former glory, to its former glory. They wanted the Messiah to overthrow the Romans and drive them out. And instead, what Jesus did was he overthrew the tables in the temple and he drove out the money changers, thus exposing the religious hypocrisy of the, of the leaders. And it rubbed them the wrong way. And from that point, he was a thorn in their side and they sought to get rid of him. But that was the testimony of John. Remember, they came to John. Tell us, are you the Christ? No, I'm not. Are you Elijah? No, I'm not. See, they, it was wonderful. It was only after he, they started, he started pointing to Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God. That's when they started to chafe. John is one of the testimonies that Jesus appeals to. The second one is the testimony of Jesus' own works. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. The very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Now this is an important thing for us to know, and I've talked about it in the past, but When Jesus healed people, when he cast out demons, when when he helped 
others through some miraculous means, feeding of the 5,000, for instance. Jesus was often moved by compassion, but that was not his primary motive for doing it. See, sometimes I think we think that was the reason why he did it. So it's easy then for us to think that, well, today it ought to be the same way. If Jesus was moved by compassion then, certainly he loves us just as much. Therefore, we ought to be seeing these things happen all the time. But, but, but then we miss the real point. And the meaning, behind, remember, John does not refer to Jesus' miracles as miracles. He refers to them as what? Signs. They're signs. Jesus performed these signs so as to help people understand who he was, what his identity is, and what his mission was all about. Remember, Jesus' mission was to seek and to save that which was lost. That's why he did these things. Not not apart from compassion, but that was his primary motive. The third testimony Jesus gives here is the testimony of the Father. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Um, I, as I was unpacking this, I was just thinking, uh, you know, the father's testimony, how did he do that? And then all of a sudden, some things came to my mind. For instance, at Jesus' baptism, the heavens opened, and a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. The father also set his seal upon his son by sending the Holy Spirit, his spirit, to descend upon Jesus and to rest upon Jesus. And that wasn't the only time that God spoke. But I believe that the testimony that he's referring to here is so much more than just his words from heaven. I think his testimony all includes the miracles that Jesus performed. And Jesus is teaching because God the Father is the one who has empowered him and commanded him and sent him to do these things. The Father's testimony is also seen in the fourth witness that Jesus appeals to. And that is the testimony of the scriptures themselves. Notice in verse 39, Jesus says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I think it's so fascinating here is that Jesus appeals to the written word of God to give testimony or witness to him as the incarnate word of God. Remember, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. And the word became flesh. Jesus is the eternal logos. The word of God become flesh. And he appeals to the scriptures in the entire Old Testament from Genesis 
to Malachi. And by the way, when it says the scriptures here, it's talking about the Old Testament because the New Testament wasn't written yet. So from Genesis to Malachi, God's word pointed to Jesus, which is incredible when you stop to think about it because the Bible as a whole was written over a period of 1,500 years. It was written on three different continents in at least three different languages by 40 different authors. It has an unbelievable unity from John, excuse me, Genesis 3.15, the first reference to the coming of the Messiah, all the way through to the end of Malachi when we learn about John the Baptist. It's incredible to think about. Um, Jesus fulfilled at least 300 Old Testament prophecies. Alfred Edersheim who's a Jewish, was a Jewish convert to Christianity. He was also a biblical scholar. Um, He found 456 Old Testament verses concerning the Messiah. And theologian J. Barton Payne found as many as 574 verses in the Old Testament that pointed to Jesus. So how did they miss it? How did they miss it? The religious leaders of Jesus' day prided themselves on knowing the word of God. The problem was they didn't know the God of the word. They could quote the Bible. They, They had whole sections of it memorized, but they were blind to who their Messiah was. That's why in verse 45, Jesus says this, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? They had the scriptures. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. They had the evidence, but it wasn't a question of evidence. It wasn't. It was a question of submission. And I'll get to that in a minute. As I was reading this passage, I was thinking, you know, this is, this is good stuff, you know, but what's it got to do with me today? What's it got to do with us today. And I think one of the things that came home to me was just asking myself the question, how am I any different than these people? How are you any different than these people? Many of us would consider ourselves students of the word. Many of us have lots of scripture memorized. We got our theology down pat. But so did they. In, In many ways. In many ways, we are like them. And the truth is, most of us are educated far beyond our obedience. We know far more than what we're living out in our life, if we were honest. And so as I I thought about these people and I 
thought about how um, heavy this was, it is. It is applicable to me today. It's applicable to you as well. Because it is possible for us to know the word of God and not know the God of the word. James warns us, do not be merely hearers of the word, be doers of the word. So how do we know we belong to Christ? Maybe these questions will help. Have you repented of your sins? Do you believe that Jesus is God in the flesh, sent to save you from your sins? Are you submitted to his authority over your life? Do you have a hunger to know him and to make him known? And does your pursuit of Bible knowledge result in life transformation? Because if it doesn't, all you're doing is getting a big head. I want to close by reading verses 41 through 44 and by sharing some points of application. Jesus says, I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe me when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? You see, again, the problem wasn't a lack of evidence. It was a refusal to submit to Jesus and his authority over their lives. They did not accept the proofs or the testimonies that were presented to them. Because if they did, it would mean they would, they would have to bend their knee to King Jesus. They would have to repent. And so the issue here is clearly submission. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 1. He says that they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They suppress the truth. I mean, they know the truth, but they suppress it. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to face it. I don't want it to impact my life in any way or form. So I am just going to push it down. They preferred the praise of men over the praise of God. That's what it says here. And you know what? That wasn't so much different than what the Old Testament people did too. Because it, it said, which of the prophets didn't you stone? They received the false prophets with no problem. They received people who would come and come in their own name, in their own authority. But when God sent people in his name and in his authority, they persecuted them. And Jesus says, you're, you're doing the same thing here with me. Folks, we, we must believe rightly about Jesus, but we must also submit to his authority over our lives. So the real question we should ask ourselves is, am I submitting to the Lordship of Christ? I mean, what does that even mean? 
And we talk about it. It's, it's a nice religious sounding term. Well, I think it, it, it begins by hearing and obeying the words of Jesus. I, I think that's where it begins. We must, we must repent and believe the gospel. We have no other hope. You can't please God until you've done that. God will be pleased with you when you do that. So the first way to honor God is to embrace Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And beyond that, we must learn to submit to him in every area of our life. We need to give him control of every area of our life. Now, easier said than done, but the true test of submission, the true test of whether you are submitted to the authority of Christ is seen and how you treat your spouse, how you talk to your kids, how you drive your car, do your taxes. It's seen how, in how you spend your money and your time. It's how you respond to criticism. It's seen in your willingness to forgive and love one another. It is seen in how you guard your eyes and guard your hearts. True submission to Christ is seen in not forsaking the assembling together, as is the habit of some. We will be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to become angry. We will grow in holiness and in the knowledge of God. And we will proclaim the gospel to those who need to hear. And we will make disciples. If we are truly submitted to the authority of Christ, we will take seriously all of his commands. Not just the ones we like. The deity of Christ is a foundational doctrine of the Christian faith. J. Oswald Sanders was right when he said that if Jesus is not God, then there is no Christianity. And we who worship him are nothing more than idolaters. If he is not God, he is not even good. Folks, we can't be indifferent to this truth. And it's not enough for just to say glibly, Jesus is God. Yes, I believe that he is God. If he is truly God, if you truly believe that, then you must submit to his authority in your life. We must believe rightly about Jesus. We must submit to his authority. And we must help others do the same. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for our time together this morning and for your word to us. And Lord, the passage we looked at today is different than the stories we've looked at up to this point. But it is nonetheless the very words of God. Your words. Jesus' words. Scripture tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. 
So, Lord, I pray that you would increase our faith as we have heard, studied, learned, and now, Lord, hopefully apply what we have learned to our lives. And may you receive all the glory and all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.